Hey, you may not know this, but Aaron Boyd is a significant partner with World Orphans, and one of the reasons why he is in town is because he is stateside. He was in Michigan for about a week, and he's been in Colorado for this past week. They've held some events. Last night was a little bit about World Orphans, and this gives many people a chance to get a glimpse of the World Orphans ministry. When we've been thinking about this series and all the things that we've been learning over the last several weeks, talking about pre-Advent and Jesus and the synagogue at Nazareth, we decided to weave in some time thinking about world orphans and how it meshes with what Jesus had to say when he was in the synagogue at Nazareth. And so we'll jump into that. I don't know if you're ready for Christmas or not. How many of you are done? You're ready. Your shopping is done. Let me see your hands if you're all... So, you know, sometime around Thanksgiving, we have a group family text and uh, everybody's in it. You know, me and my wife, our two boys and our daughter-in-law and... So around Thanksgiving, we start flying texts about Christmas lists and things that we would like, things that we want. Somebody asks, usually it's one of the kids who's trying to get their shopping done early because it's not Donna or I doing that. And, and they say, hey, you know, uh, we'd love to know what everybody wants for Christmas because nobody wants to just get the generic thing. We want to get something that you want, you know. And so I sit down, start writing the text out. And it reminds me of when I was a kid. And I would get out the, the wish book, you know, or the catalog or, I mean, I, I couldn't Google things. It didn't exist. And so that's how old we are. And I'd start making a list. And I, I'll be honest, when I'm typing this list out in this group text, just a little bit of excitement starts to kindle in me for Christmas because I think I, I, I get to ask for something that I don't have. And somebody's going to see this list and think, well, we can afford that. Let's get him that. Let's get dad this. Let's get, you know. And so it's just like when I was a kid. It's the same feeling. And maybe that has something to do with my emotional maturity. Um, (laughs) But there's this sense of, I wonder, I wonder if that's going to come my way now. Just because I decided to put it on a list We've been asking you over the last many weeks to sort of tune up your hope. And what we mean by that is, is, is take stock in what you hope for, where your hope is placed. Maybe it could be that you have misplaced your hope in some things that really you shouldn't be counting on. I mean, you want to, you kind of count on it, and then you get disappointed when something doesn't work out. It could be that your hope has been so decimated that you've given up on hope and decided that's just a fool's errand. I don't know what it is, but we have asked you over the last five or six weeks as we prepared for the Advent season and Christmas to be thoughtful about where your hope is placed, what your hope is in, And we've given you all kinds of possibilities and ideas about tuning up your hope and putting it in good places. Because without hope, you don't move forward. Without hope, you find yourself wasting time on things that don't matter. Without hope, you waste not just time, but energy and resources and conversations and relationships. If your hope is in something that may or may not come to pass or is just a wish and a, you know, something else, then you need to know that there is a hope that is available to me, it's available to you, and it can be put on a solid foundation and it is real and it is based on not only what 
will happen, but it's based on what has happened. And the two of these things together build a bridge and help you move forward. Because I know if there's anything that you need, it's hope. And it's hope that's real. And so we're going to bookend today with a couple of verses from Romans around hope. We're going to jump back into Isaiah 61 just for a moment. We're going to chat with Scott Vare, the CEO of World Orphans, for a bit. And then maybe introduce you to some of the things that our church does that you had no idea about. And then Aaron's going to come back and seal it all up for us, okay? And so here, this verse, I swear, is written for Christmas. And it's out of Romans, and it's really centered around hope. Like I say, we're going to bookend today with a couple of verses from Romans. I think if Christmas wasn't in mind when this was written, then it should have been. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? I mean, doesn't they just have Christmas written all over it? This idea, it's the same thing I feel when I'm typing out in this family text or when I was a kid scrawling on a big piece of paper, my Christmas wish list. This is what hope is. Hope is about the things that we don't have yet. And we've been reading and refocusing for weeks. And we've used this passage out of the Gospels where Jesus shows up in Nazareth. His ministry is beginning and he begins to read from the prophet Isaiah. And he articulates that he has come to establish and proclaim the beginning of the year of the Lord's favor or the age of the Lord's favor or the epic of the Lord's favor. And it is about the inauguration of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here. That's what Jesus' message was. It's what John the Baptist proclaimed when the ministry began, that it is starting now. And yet there is a time that is to come where the kingdom will be in full fulfillment. Historically, Advent, the season of Advent, and these candles that we light, historically is about two very important events in the life of followers of Jesus. And one has happened and one has yet to happen. The first is the birth of Jesus. Of course, Advent is about that. And we put ourselves in the heart and mind of Israel as they are waiting for a Messiah. And so pure Adventists, people who really understand Advent and are in the habit of practicing it, they don't sing about Jesus being born until the 25th. They don't sing Christmas carols until it actually happens liturgically according to the calendar. We, you know, we're sort of halfway doing it. You know, I can't, I can't wait until the 25th. So um, Josh can't either. We all can't. We want to sing a little bit about the, all the things that happened throughout the entire month of December. But if we were being pure about it, we would put ourselves in the O come, O come, Emmanuel mindset and just pretend like Jesus hasn't even been born yet for a whole month. I can't do it. I just can't do it. But it's not just about Jesus' birth. Advent, historically and liturgically, is about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus is in the synagogue at Nazareth and he says, I've come, he sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus quotes the longer passage. When Jesus says this, he's saying there is a beginning to the kingdom coming and it's right now, but there is a fulfillment to the kingdom coming and it is yet to come. And this is why you and I, we struggle with hope because we see a relationship that's broken 
We feel trust that is betrayed. We see needs that are going unmet. We see people who have not been healed, sight that has not been restored, prisoners that are still imprisoned, people that are still oppressed. And if we stare at that too long, we lose hope and forget that Jesus came and that some of these things are actually happening that he described when he read this passage from Isaiah 61. And so we yearn for the day when the kingdom is fully fulfilled, when all disease is healed, when he wipes every tear, when relationships are restored. We long for that day. But there is much to be done between. Between the kingdom beginning and the fulfillment of the kingdom, that's where we live right now. And so we do things like work with organizations that free vets from PTSD. We try to feed the poor. and We try to meet the needs of those who are ignored by our culture and our society. And we invite you to do the same thing. I mean, last night in this room, we watched as the stars did their dancing and singing with Aaron. And Aaron is good, but not like the stars. Right? Aaron? Come on. I'm telling you, these, these young adults, and they know how to dance. They know how to sing. They know how to communicate joy in a way that I only wish I was free to do. I'm all bound up in things like embarrassment and lack of skills and all that. <laughs> and so I watch, and I think about the kingdom having come and the dancing that happens. And so we get glimpses. And that's what inspires us to take our energy and our time and our efforts and pour it into places where God's kingdom is flourishing. And we've given you many examples, and World Orphans is one of the most profound ones that we're connected with. So before I bring Scott up, in this passage in Isaiah 61, we only gave you a glimpse of the verse. We talked about a few things that Jesus talked about and the the brokenhearted being bound up, all of that. But there's another piece to it that you're going to hear today that not only is it foundational to the ministry of world orphans and what Jesus came to do and what he is doing right now, but it's also foundational to who we are as a church in our history and our beginning. At one point, Jesus says this as he quotes Isaiah 61. Um, He quotes the earlier passage. The prophet Isaiah goes on to say this. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. In fact, let's say the verse together. You ready? To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes. Maybe you've heard the phrase beauty for ashes. Maybe you've heard it quoted in church. Maybe you've heard it described. Maybe you've been to a funeral or something like that, and you've understood the context of this verse, but maybe the the analogy is one that's lost on you or one that sounds poetic, but I'm not really sure what it means practically. Ashes in the Old Testament and in Hebrew Jewish culture were used for mourning to describe and give a picture of desolation. We find Job sitting on a heap of ashes. When people mourn, they tear their clothes and they have ashes on their head. There is a moment in history that's being described by the prophet Isaiah where those ashes that represent desolation, sadness, disappointment, they are replaced by Well, we have translated in English to be crown of beauty, but it's a very difficult Hebrew word to translate. 
And what it means is that there is a, a headdress, a, a crown given, a tiara that is placed on top of the individual where there was mourning, desolation, and sadness. There is a reversal of fortune. And we've talked about this from the beginning of our pre-Advent series that when Jesus comes and the kingdom is inaugurated, there is a reversal of fortune. And so the blind, they begin to see. The brokenhearted, they are bound up. The oppressed, they are set free as well. All of these things occur and this morning in Israel to those who there, he gives a crown, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And one of the ministries that's doing this all over the world that we are connected and partnered with, that if you give to Castle Oaks and her ministries, you have supported as well is, is really everything that happens through World Orphans. So do me a favor and let's invite Scott Bear up. Would you welcome Scott? Scott's one of our friends here in the church. Of course, he's um, connected to uh, one of our associate pastors, Debbie, and their family. In fact, Nora's running graphics this morning, and you've been a part of the church for a long time. How long have you been the CEO of World Orphans? Uh, 2011. World Orphans has an incredible reach in our world and their ministry. Uh, what's your annual budget? Uh, just around three million, give or take a couple hundred thousand. How many people are you connected with staff-wise that are spread all over the globe? We have about uh, 15 staff in the U.S. Um, in various states and about that same number in other countries. We have staff in Guatemala, Ethiopia, uh, Haiti, India, and in northern Iraq. And if you were to give a, a thumbnail sketch of somebody said, do, t tell me what World Orphans does. What, what, what's the ministry about? What are you trying to accomplish? What would you say? I would say we're a family preservation uh, organization. So there's two types of, of care. There's intervention, where you're really seeing uh, something that has to be dealt with right now. Uh, a real person that uh, maybe a child that is uh, on the streets or has been trafficked or something like that has to be uh, taken care of right now. Um, we're majority, what we do, 90% is on the preventative side. We're trying to prevent kids from being orphaned, prevent kids from being abandoned at an orphanage. So we're a family preservation. You shared a stat last night, and I've heard you share it many times before. Um, we have a misunderstanding regarding uh, the nature of, of being an orphan out in developing countries. You shared that most orphans, 80% in fact, have one living parent, at least one living parent. And the reason that they end up in an orphanage is, I mean, it varies a lot by country and culture. It could be that uh, gender preference uh, plays a role in some countries um, and some cultures when a, a husband, uh, re where, sorry, where a, a wife loses her husband and remarries, the new husband will refuse to take in the children. Uh, abuse and neglect are certainly a part of that. But in our experience, extreme poverty is the number one driver of children being abandoned at an orphanage. So a family has a kid, a single mom, has a, has a child or maybe many children. And so in, instead of being able to care for them, they allow them to be placed in a facility. Yeah, yeah a desperate decision that uh, no mom or no dad should ever have to make. 
Most of us can't even fathom it. I can't, no. So the local church is, uh, is a key piece of your strategy and your connections to the various communities that you serve. Talk about how the local church plays into your mission. Yeah, from the beginning, our founder uh, had a vision of partnering with local churches. So we're a parachurch organization. We're not a church. Um, and there's two types of parachurch organizations. One sees a need that the church should be meeting, and they step in and meet that need for the church. The other, which World Orphan falls into, is we see a need that the church isn't able to, to meet, and we step in and try to help the church meet that need instead of replacing the church in meeting that need. And so we, from the beginning, have had um, just this desire to empower the local church to be able to, to reach and meet the needs of orphans. So you may not know this as a church body. I mean, many in our church already know this, but uh, I think many don't as well. World Orphans tries to connect churches in the states with churches in developing areas. And so since 2009, our church here in Castle Rock, Colorado, has been connected to another church in a very different place, very different culture, very different economic situation that we are partnered with. And so we have a relationship with this church. And so we want you to know about this church if you don't already. And so um, introduce us to the pastors of this church. Yeah, this is uh, Pastor Siva uh, and his wife, Ronnie. And uh, they are uh, in Chatsworth, South Africa. And they planted their church in 1993. Uh, now, uh, you may recall, especially if you're in uh, our age demographic, that apartheid ended in the early to mid-90s in South Africa. And so they planted this church right about that same time. And um, Pastor Siva and Ronnie are of Indian background. I think they're first-generation South Africans born in, uh, their parents immigrated to South Africa from India. And so... Um, Townships in South Africa uh, in the, before the 90s were very much segregated by race. And so they lived in Chatsworth. They live in South Chatsworth, which is a Indian township. They planted their church right on the border between Chatsworth and another township called Welbadoc. Welbadoc is a Zulu township. So this is an Indian couple planting a church in a Zulu, which is a black township. And so most of the people that come to the church are Indian, and their ministry is to Zulu. So they have a tremendous heart for um, just those that are need. I don't, in need. I don't think I've ever met anyone with a more compassionate, tender heart than Ronnie Moodley, Pastor Siva's wife. She wears her emotions on her sleeve. She cares so passionately about the vulnerable and those in need. It just wrecks her every time she sees someone, and it's particularly a child, that is in need. And it's really driven their ministry. So I was introduced to them by uh, the director of the Willow Creek Association out of Chicago. And he said, you have to meet this couple and see what they're doing in South Africa. So I met them in 2008, um, before I was the CEO of World Orphans. I really oversaw our programs and our expansion and partnership and all of that. And so I went and I met them in 2008, and uh, they, were, they had a, a, a home on their property where they were caring for six kids. 
that uh, had been abandoned, or I think, um, so they work with the local government there, um, much like our social services here, and they take placement of um, kids that um, have been abused, neglected. So while our, our model is primarily family preservation, there still is a need for intervention, and they fit that need. They, they actually do both. So our partnership with them is preservation. We support 10 families that they're supporting in their community. It's grannies, they call them grannies or go-go's, that have taken in kids that have lost their parents. And so they're living in family homes in the community. And we provide enough money for them to, to provide some food for those families and make sure they're in school. And so we're, we're partnered with them. What, what, what does that mean to us here in Castle Rock and to them yeah, there in South yeah, Africa? Yeah, sure. Um, so we talked about our desire from the beginning to be um, about partnering with local churches and doing ministry in partnership with local churches. It's one of our core values. One of our other core values is that we value relationship over resources. So our partnership with them is about relationship. And so we've sent, I think, four or five teams to go over and spend time with them. Uh, when they go, they don't do building projects or painting walls or building something. They spend time with them to encourage them, support them, um, just to help them um, sort of a shot in the arm when things get, get hard. Some, so. some people here have been to see them. Who, who's, who's been over to South Africa to raise your hands up? Let's see it. Okay, there's at least a dozen or so people in our church that have made trips. We even had a trip that went during covid yeah, as, it, as it kicked off. Right before COVID. And actually, it was uh, my wife, Debbie, and uh, Christy Fuller, and um, Mark's daughter, Caroline, and uh, I think Allison. Um, and they were there. It was uh, March of 2020. Yeah. And uh, I remember getting a text from uh, Debbie. It was right when things were really starting to spiral out of control. And she said, we were hearing on the news here that there's a run on toilet paper. Do we have toilet paper? And I'm like, what are you talking about toilet paper? And of course we know what happened then, but um, they actually got home the day uh, that the NCAA tournament was canceled. So you, if you'll remember, for me, that was a significant, uh, not only because I'm a basketball fan, but if you're gonna cancel a multi-million dollar, billion dollar tournament, right, right. it must be serious, right? For so. sure. And so uh, we understand our church life. We, we, we gather and we have church and we have groups and we do all the, we, understand, we know what church is like. What's it like there? What, what's, what's the Christian Life Center? You give us a, a, an idea. Yeah, so they have a, a bigger compound than we do here. They have more space. Um, but their church is typical like our church. Um, it would follow a similar pattern, but it's longer. Um, the service is longer. Um, See what you could be in for? Right, right. See what I'm saying? Um, they're a prayerful group, I will say that. They have prayer vigils, prayer meetings um, multiple times throughout the week that go for extended periods of time. Um, but it, it would follow a similar pattern where we have, they would have worship and preaching and uh, Pastor Siva has a theology degree. His background is actually, he was a police officer before planning his church and he went to theology school and yeah. Um, yeah. And so you uh, came to me last year 
um, during the year, this, this past, six months ago, and said they have a need. What was that need, and, and what did you want to see done? Yeah, so it's not uncommon in Africa for there to be rolling power outages, and they're sort of used to managing that. Sometimes that power, power goes out, and then it comes back, and they're used to that. Um, but they experienced significant drought in South Africa this last year, and so they were having rolling outages, or where they turn their water off, and for the size of their compound and the ministry that they do to have their water turned off during the day was crippling for them. And so they wanted to dig a well. And uh, uh, we reached out to Castle Oaks and a few other uh, friends at World Orphans to see if we could raise the money for, to help them drill a well. What did that cost? I think it was uh, six or 7000 something like that. And I think we maybe did a third of that. Yeah. So as you're dollars were given to that, uh, it, it made its way across and uh, into South Africa, and um, this is yeah, a This is the church, the inside of the church, and they have a, a preschool that they run on uh, their campus, and uh, it's summertime there, so they just had their uh, end of their school year, and this was a graduation at the, the preschool, I think. It's a very nice building. They even have an organ. We don't, we don't even have one of those, so very good. This was what uh, your money went toward. This was the actual drilling of the well. I think they're running for cover. So the well drilled in the summer. Yeah, and so uh, that's when they they uh, broke through and, and got the water. Um, but they were nervous because they were at the end of how far deep they could go. And uh, they actually gathered everybody that was on the compound that day, went in the church and prayed while they were finishing that drill, and Lord, please let us get to water. And they came back out, and boom, that's what happened. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, these tanks there, uh, that's uh, uh, Pastor Siv and Ronnie, um, and uh, to the directions right here on the far side there. Um, that's Wayne, their oldest son. And uh, those green uh, holding tanks behind, uh, the water comes out of the, the well there and into those holding tanks, and then they distribute it into the, into the various buildings that they have on campus. So we have ministries here. We've talked about them over the last six weeks that where we try to meet the needs of people in our community in a variety of ways, whether it's the food bank or um, pouring energy into Wellspring, all those kinds of things. Uh, tell us a little bit about this and what it's for. Yeah, this is, uh, so one of the buildings they have on their campus is a vocational training center. And uh, they've uh, historically taught um, Zulu women how to make uh, beaded jewelry. Uh, some of the stuff that you've seen if you've been to the collective, these little tiny beads that are strung into necklaces and bracelets and earrings. Um, we have two kinds there, these bigger beads that are made in Ethiopia, but that's tiny little beads. They taught um, Zulu women who live way up on a mountain, uh, which is a story for another day, but um, how to make those uh, necklaces and bracelets and stuff. Um, but they built uh, a topper, uh, upper floor um, with these sewing machines in there, and they've done sewing training programs for women. And um, yeah, that's what, what these sewing machines are for, is for uh, training for sewing. 
So the model that World Orphans employs uh, has a couple significant pieces to it. And if I get these wrong, you correct me and you add to it because we're going to give a gift to the church as well that uh, is connected to that. But the church connection is a big one. They believe in working through the local church. Our connection to the Christian Life Center there in Chatsworth uh, empowers us in a, a myriad of ways. We have people that have been there that have seen it. They have relationships with these people. We desire for this church to be successful, and we believe that we can help that occur. And we believe that we learn something about how the gospel is actually employed in places where the culture is different, the economic constraints are different, and we get to be a part of that. We understand the size of the world and the impact of the gospel outside of our little bubble here in Castle Rock. Beyond that, their model includes not just interventions, trying to keep families together. Of course, there are other interventions with orphans and providing places for them to live. They try to create economic empowerment, and that can be anything from microloans to businesses that they help families set up, training centers like this, and one of them uh, exists through the Turpos and their ministry in Guatemala that's connected to what we're about to do. So tell us what we're looking at there. Yeah, so um, these are ladies in Guatemala that are... Um, part of our uh, sewing program, uh, vocational training program down there. And uh, they've learned to make uh, products that we sell at the collective. And uh, they make some of the, if you've seen the shawls or the kimonos, we call them, uh, some of the fabric purses. Um, but over the last year, we've really uh, doubled down on teaching them to work with leather and uh, to do leather work. I went down over the summer, um, I took, uh, we went down and bought a few more uh, sewing machines. Most of the machines they had, uh, as the ladies were learning, uh, the sewing machine goes real fast. So you push down on the controller and it goes like that. And so they're trying to keep straight lines and go around corners when the sewing machine's going fast. And unlike uh, fabric, when you, uh, if you make a mistake, you pull the thread back out and you do it again. Uh, once a hole's in leather, there's a hole in leather and it's, it's, it's wasted. So uh, we bought them machines that have these uh, motors that uh, are much easier to control. So they were having to hand turn, you know, that little dial on the end of a sewing machine. And I don't know how to sew, let's for sure put that. But there's this, this dial at the end of the sewing machine that they were having to hand crank that to get it to go slow enough to be able to make corners and straight lines. And so we bought these motors and some new sewing machines that are variable so they can actually make it. And it has enough torque still to go through leather, but one stitch per second to help them go straight lines and around corners. It was revolutionary for them. Um, and I also took down some equipment for leather stamping and stuff like that so we could do custom orders and stuff like that. So these are just a couple of the ladies that are in that program. And there's uh, one of the ladies, she's making one of the laptop cases that we have down in. How many of you have shopped down at the Collective? Let me see your hands. You've shopped down there. If you have not been down at the Collective, um, down on Perry Street, you should go down and, and just, just check it out. And if you're worried about your own financial situation, leave your wallet at home um, because you'll want to buy some things down there. We give Christmas gifts every year from what's being sold down there. It's absolutely incredible stuff. But give us an idea of what that sort of economic empowerment means to a family in Guatemala. Yeah, so there are, we have three co-ops that are, have, I think, six or seven ladies in each one. 
And the sales that we do at the collective, we average 3,000, I would say, a month if you look at the course of the whole year. And that's enough for me to continue to order enough product to keep those three co-ops busy. It's two leather and sewing co-ops and one crochet co-op. If you've seen the crochet work, those little animals and stuff that they do, they're remarkable. Um, but the collective has allowed us to keep those three co-ops on busy enough with orders so that they really are, quote, employed. So that keeps, what's that, uh, 18 to 20 women uh, actively working every month. That's incredible. That's incredible. Before we move on from that, let me... Let me uh, explain what this is. Uh, well, you'll do better. Tell us what yeah, that sure. is. So, uh, as you know, uh, Castle Oaks is a very generous um, Father's Day uh, bacon. Um, they give away sometimes, and Mother's Day uh, flowers with uh, Kim Speed in her truck, and uh, we've done blankets and stuff like that. So the the church just likes to to give. Uh, Gifts to the to the congregation every so often, and at Christmas time, I think was it last year we did the blankets. Right. Yeah, we did the blankets, if you recall. And uh, so we had a conversation about. I asked if we were going to be doing a gift for uh, the the church again this year at Christmas time, and we were. And so I said, well, what if we did keychains from one of the co-ops down in Guatemala, and we can get the logo for Castle Oaks stamped right on the the keychain. And so we did that. And so I think we have enough for everybody to have one today. And so this, this, uh, this little keychain, if you, once you uh, get out in the lobby and pick up yours, you can see the Castle Oaks logo stamped. This, this stamp happened down in Guatemala? Yeah, one of the machines that I took down when I went over the summer was this big press. And so you, you get a die made for it with a logo, and then they put that little die in there, and it cranked down and put a stamp in the leather. And so we, we have one of these for you. And we would love for you to pick one up uh, out at the Welcome Center. And uh, you can, uh, I have one. I've had it for a, a, a couple months. I got my Christmas gift early. And it's been on my bag that I carry to work every day. Uh, and it reminds me of the empowerment that happens and that it happens in small ways. There are things that we can do that enable people in a community to experience freedom that it would be absolutely foreign to us. Freedom to us means a very different thing. But for them, it means that they are able to make a profit and pay for their meals that week and be employed in uh, a gainful way, a skill that will allow their family to experience freedom. Um, I, I'm grateful for World Orphans and for what they do and for having Aaron here, and we pray that all the money that's been raised uh, will just increase your ministry many-fold. Would you thank Scott for being here? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm going to say we're not quite done. We're not, we're not. <laughs> so uh, back to our partners in South Africa yeah, and yeah. sewing. Um, when I was, so I went over in October. I'm sorry, do I no, have no, just a couple be, minutes? Don't be, you guys be. got places to go? or No, they don't, not okay, at all. Cool. So when I was over in October, um, uh, they told me about a need that they're uh, trying to meet. So they do both intervention and preventive work. Um, and um, for a Sunday morning, they have uh, kids that they know, teenagers that they know, that are um, in a, quote, occupation that they felt like they had no choice but to try to support their family. And this is an occupation where you're abused and neglected 
and uh, most commonly associated with young girls, but boys as well. And so they have uh, wanted to start a new program in January where they get 10 of these teenagers out of the situation they're in and get them back into school. And uh, they want to provide their family with a food basket to try to help support their family a little bit. And then teach the kids, the teenagers, how to sew so they have a marketable skill. And in order so for them to learn and be able to go to school and do all of that and, and not have to do that other thing, they want to give them a monthly stipend or a weekly stipend so they have some money to support their family. And so for $150 a month, they can... Uh, train one of these teenagers and get them out of the spot that they're in. And they wanted to do that for 10 um, young girls and boys and try to get them out of their spot that they're in and, and set them on a different trajectory. Mostly teenagers. They're teenagers, yeah. And they have family that's local. Yep, they're living with their family local and, and they're trying to support their family right. by doing this. And so that's unthinkable to us, and uh, we want to give you an opportunity to participate in that. And so the way you can do that, uh, out at the lobby, you'll find a card like this. There's some back by our giving boxes as well. On the back, you can put your contact information. There's a QR code you can scan uh, to get you to the giving page. If you want, you can support uh, one child, one teenager for $150 each month. You can team up with some people in your small group or in your community and maybe do that. If you want to just contribute 10 bucks a month, we'll add it to other donations and try to take care of those 10 kids. That's our goal, is to take care of those 10 uh, that, uh, that they're trying to meet the needs of. And it's a pilot program. It's a pilot program. It's a year-long program. They're uh, hoping that at the end of the year, those uh, kids will be successful going forward and have a big graduation ceremony for them and all of that. So. so when you think of the passage that we've been studying for the last several weeks in this pilot program, uh, what, what are your thoughts about how they meet together? Yeah, uh, especially uh, the verse that you just shared before we got up, beauty to ashes. Um, and how God can turn something so bad and work through the church with these families and these kids and turn it into something beautiful. And uh, by connecting them and having all of that happen right there at the church and seeing them, uh, seeing the prayer groups come in the afternoon and the evenings and being connected, it's just, uh, it's so affirming for, for me and our model. And to see that happen through local churches, I'm just, it's a blessing. So we want to give you a chance to do that. Thanks, Scott. Now you can really thank him. So I want uh, Aaron and the, and the crew to come up. They're going to lead you in, uh, in a song that's absolutely connected to what we've been talking about. It's one of Aaron's uh, most well-known songs. The other verse from Romans that I want you to carry with you today through this Christmas season, again, written as if Christmas was in mind. Um, Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our hope, that our joy and peace would flow because we trust and believe in the God of hope. And we believe in the God of hope is doing things like releasing the captives and allowing the blind to see and taking care of the oppressed. We believe that the God of hope is taking what we have covered in ashes and replacing it with the crown of beauty. 
But there's one more verse that uh, before they sing, I want you to catch a glimpse of. And it really is foundational to who we are as a church body. It's foundational to our understanding of what God has called us to. There's something that happens to people who were blind and now they see. There's something that happens to us when we have been oppressed and we have been set free and we find freedom. The hope is that we would in turn offer that very same thing to others. Well, the prophet Isaiah, in the prophetic language that God had given him, he found a much more poetic and picturesque way to describe it. And he says it this way. The people that have experienced this, it's us, it's me and it's you, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. The people more than 20 years ago that founded this fellowship looked to this verse as a place of inspiration and understanding as they tried to figure out who will we be in this community? What will be our legacy? What will we use our resources for? Who will we say is in fact the God of this city? And we want to be, and we hope that as transformed as we are, that we are oaks of righteousness on display for his splendor, no one else's, just his. And so Lord, as we come to this place, as we understand what's happening during the Advent season, we pray that you would pour out your blessing on all that occurs. And we pray that we would be this very thing for your splendor and yours alone. We all pray this in the name of Jesus and we say together, amen.